Jones. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Life, life well, today I'm just overjoyed to welcome our next uh, guest to the podcast, uh, Dr. Dennis Leota. We'll get into his bio in just a minute. Um, but before I do, I want to uh, acknowledge and welcome my um, co-conspirator, Suna Lume. Hey. Um, she is our uh, uh, Director of Operations uh, here in Atlanta for Portal Innovations. Uh, but she's also an entrepreneur and a scientist uh, with an MBA. So she's um, really been a great partner to Portal and um, will be um, part of the conversation today. Um, but back to Dennis. Um, Dennis is the physical manifestation of true diligence, dedication, and commitment to science. He obtained his PhD in organic chemistry from the City University of New York in 1974. Following this, he dedicated himself to drug discovery and is recognized as one of the premier discoverers of novel therapeutics in the United States, if not the world. He's noted as authoring over 300 peer-reviewed articles, holds the inventorship to over 100 patents. His innovations have created at least 18 life-saving FDA therapeutic treatments and has co-founded more than 10 pharmaceutical companies. Notably, Leota's research has been truly innovative in furthering HIV AIDS research. Um, the M Emory University Office of Technology Transfer estimates that 95% of people living with HIV AIDS have taken a drug co-invented by Dr. Leota. We are truly lucky and honored to have this conversation uh, with Dennis to discuss his research, his entrepreneurial experiences, um, and, and really kind of what, uh, what the story behind you know getting these drugs identified and on the path to commercialization. So welcome to the podcast. Hey. <laughs> hey. Thank you very much. <laughs> Great to be here. Well, maybe just uh, diving uh, right in and maybe starting to center around uh, and setting setting a bit of a, a, a framework. I mean, can you talk about your role as a chemistry professor at Emory and how you began in, in that role becoming interested in drug discovery and then maybe a little bit around uh, what got you engaged with your first entrepreneurial endeavor and what, what that experience was like? Certainly. So I was probably the least likely candidate to be uh, an entrepreneur in biotech. Uh, I tell people that the last biology course I took was in 10th grade. And so I didn't have the classic preparation for medicinal chemistry. I was, for the first uh, 10 years of my academic career, I did synthetic methodology, uh, finding new and more efficient ways to do important and sometimes novel chemical transformations. And it was very nice work. Sometimes I look back at it, pull out some of the papers and say, hmm, it was nice. But two things happened at that point. Uh, one, I started to consult at pharmaceutical companies, and I became very intrigued by what they were doing. They asked me to be a chemistry consultant, but of course, 
in doing so, you learn the big picture. Mm. And, and I was very drawn to that, even though I had no real background in it. And then um, the AIDS pandemic was starting to really roar by the mid 80s. And uh, people I knew, some of the most creative people I knew uh, were getting sick and dying mm -hmm. and there was nothing, nothing there. And I made this somewhat crazy decision that I was going to get involved in this process. And some of my colleagues told me that I must either be stupid or crazy because uh, I didn't really have the background here and I'd be competing instead of competing against individual labs as I did in my normal academic endeavors. I'd be competing against big pharmaceutical companies who had infinitely more resources than I had, who had many hundreds of smart, talented people, and how could my little lab hope to compete? And I'd say those are legitimate points, right. <laughs> but I just felt like I had to do something. And I, I was looking back at all the nice little papers that I did, and I said to myself, when I retire, am I going to look back and say after working hard for many years that there are only a handful of people in the world who will remember what I did and think that it was it, that it was a useful contribution. So one way or the other, I said, I want to at least try to do something impactful, something that's going to make a positive difference. And, and I just decided um, pharma wasn't getting anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I probably couldn't do any worse than they were doing. Mm -hmm. So let me give it a try. Uh, I didn't know a lot of virology, but fortunately, I, I started something there that I've done my entire career, which is I've found collaborators with complementary skill sets yeah. who could teach me the things that I didn't know, teach me enough mm. to be able to actually read and understand a journal article. Because um, to a novice, most journal articles are impenetrable. Uh, they use acronyms that you don't know, they, uh, they, they assume you understand certain principles and they don't, they don't write them. So until you reach a certain point of expertise, you can't even understand what's in the literature. But I had some colleagues who were very helpful when I got started, my colleague Raymond Shinazi uh, was an organic chemist turned virologist and um, we got together through uh, a, a mutual student that um, had worked with both of us, and um, he uh, he knew a, a lot of virology, and I thought I could contribute the chemistry. So that's how we actually got going. And um, he came back from an AIDS meeting in Montreal, and he said there was a poster describing a compound uh, that showed good potency and relatively low toxicity. Now, that may not sound like very much by today's standards, but back then, yeah. the only drug we had was AZT, right. and it was very toxic. Yes. And so 
what you know something that people are going to have to take every day of their life right. there's a special safety requirement yeah. associated with that and uh, so he said why don't we make these and i said well uh, i don't believe since these people are from a company i don't believe that they put out a poster unless they uh, were had already filed a patent application right. on it right and therefore they're going to be ahead of us from the intellectual property perspective and we'll never get anywhere mm -hmm. and um, uh, complex interactions occurred for a while but eventually uh, we decided to take the plunge in doing these and the synthesis that was reported and it was classical was very tedious and almost impossible to scale okay and so I had a new postdoc, very talented Korean uh, PhD, and uh, we talked about this in the very first reaction that he did. I can remember this so vividly. He showed me this NMR spectrum, and it was super clean. Mm -hmm. It was just perfect. You could look at it, and it was classical. You could assign just visually every everything you expected in the product. And I said, that's great. How did you purify it? And he said, that's the crude product. Oh, wow. Mm. So yeah. this was a super clean yeah. reaction. I and see. so suddenly we yeah. had something that yeah. all the pharma guys didn't have, yeah. all our competitors. Sure. We could, we could make these compounds yeah. very efficiently. And scale them. Scale them. Yeah. And we could run circles around these people, which we did. Yeah. Uh, and and um, so we were able to... Um, unlike the previous patents, we could we could uh, claim things that we actually made. We exemplified them in the patents. Okay. And as you know, these days that's what the the uh, courts uh, require yeah. uh, For is a, a degree of exemplification. Yeah. So we were able to make um, um, all of these compounds very cleanly um, and. We figured out a way, uh, so we made them as um, uh, what we call a racemate, which is an equal mixture of two mirror image structures that are not superimposable. It sounds very technical, but if you if you hold up in your left hand and right hand next to each other, they're mirror images of yeah. each other, but if you try and superimpose them, they don't work, yeah. right? That's why we have left-handed gloves and right-handed gloves. Uh, and so... Uh, I'm, so, not, I'm not a chemist, but that's an enantiomer, right? Is that's that, an enantiomer. Yeah, very yeah. good. Very good. You get an A. And, uh, <laughs> my brother's a medicinal chemist, uh, so I, that's my cheat sheet. <laughs> so we um, we figured out how to make the enantiomers, and it turned out that in each of these, each of the two drugs that we ultimately emerged from from these studies, uh, we gave them as single enantiomers, and we were the first to actually show how to make the enantiomers. And since that was what was administered, our intellectual property ultimately, uh, uh, you know, ruled over uh, all our competitors. I see, I see, yeah. So, well, and so, but talk about that. We, we kind of think big picture now too. So you're, you're at Emory at the time. Um, they filed patents. Yes. Uh, and then what happened next? Did you, did, did, was it the university 
uh, that that where you're doing that work, or did you did you form a company, or uh, yeah. did you get a license, or uh, maybe talk a little bit about that part of the process Excellent. too? So um, we filed patents, but our we didn't actually have a technology transfer office at the time. Mm-hmm. We had an office of sponsored programs that c- kind of handled the um, p- patent filing on the side. And um, if you think that wasn't that sophisticated, then um, you can also imagine that the the first patent application that we produced was um, less than ideal, not as robust mm-hmm. as one would like. Mm-hmm. But um, while it wasn't something that uh, someone in law school would, would Put up as a as a model of what to do, it was good enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was just enough enablement mm-hmm. in this uh, patent application, and of course, then we filed subsequent applications mm-hmm. to actually win the day. Mm-hmm. And one of it was not something that the patent attorney added. I just added literally one sentence that said. Uh, that uh, we could add groups uh, uh, on this five prime hydroxyl position uh, that might be uh, susceptible to enzymatic hydrolysis, enabling us to get individual enantiomers, and um, and I call that the billion dollar sentence huh. because mm-hmm. that's. Ultimately, that and a couple of other parts of the patent yeah. were what we based our enablement on. Amazing. And um, I was deposed dozens of times, <laughs> and uh, I, I'll, I'll spare you all that. Uh, but um, it's that's kind of a interesting lionizing experience yeah. because you get these patent attorneys that are grilling you about every single thing. I can only imagine. Yeah. And after well, a while, something you... becomes valuable, then there's going to be a lot of people that argue absolutely. about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And who else would have, was there anybody else coming out of academia who has gone through that process at the time that you? No, I think we were, uh, we were uh, trailblazers at at that time, um, not intentionally, it was just this is what we had to do, and um, uh, and so we had to work very hard to get our first patent application approved, uh, and but we ultimately convinced the examiner that it it, it was, and I thought, okay, now we've won, everything's done, uh, everything, and of course that was uh, completely untrue. Uh, the first thing uh, that uh, our competitors did was say that our our patent was invalid, and um, and basically, if you want to um, if you want to try and enforce that patent, you're going to have to try and sue us. So they said a little university trying to sue. Yeah. Um, what was then uh, Glaxo Welcome the uh, at the time in the 90s the most cash rich. Uh, pharmaceutical company in the world, and another Canadian company uh, called Biochem Pharma, and and then there was Emory, and mm-hmm. they assumed, like most um, typical companies would, that if they just strung out the litigation long enough, we'd get tired of burning money, sure, and and uh, 
my colleagues in the Emory administration decided that they thought this was worthwhile mm -hmm. and they put up the money. Wow. And, you know, God Cre bless them. Credit were, the whole team for that yeah. that's recognition. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, the, you know, and of course, every now and then when they'd get a little weak need, I'd say, <laughs> well, you could just give it back to us and we'll form a syndicate and, and, and develop it ourselves. And they'd say, no, no, we'll, <laughs> we'll go forward. We'll take so, care of it, yeah. So, yeah that's funny. Uh, it was, that's funny. It was, it was good. And um, so it, we, uh, we sued uh, these giant companies um, and, uh, in Georgia. And ultimately, uh, because it was our home territory, um, despite all the intrigue in between, uh, they never actually wanted to go to a jury trial in Georgia mm -hmm. because the idea that these large pharmaceutical companies were picking on a couple of Emory professors <laughs> right. who were just trying to do some good. Right. Uh, they, and we, a had, good we had focus groups and they, it wouldn't have gone well, yeah, right? Right, mm -hmm. right. So um, like many other um, litigations, uh, we say figuratively that we settled on the courthouse steps. That's pretty close to the truth. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and so uh, so we resolved uh, with cross-licensing and everything okay. all, the, all the IP matters. Yeah. And uh, they, um, they uh, gave us a, a cash settlement as well. Okay. And, um, and we thought, I once again thought, you're we there had now. You're, <laughs> we had you're, one. you're in the clear. Uh, we had licensed it to a company called Triangle Pharmaceuticals. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Triangle, interesting story. They were formed from uh, the previous um, uh, senior uh, scientists and administration of Burroughs Welcome. Okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, when, when Glaxo acquired Burroughs Welcome, it became Glaxo Welcome. And those people didn't like the new culture of the company, so they left and started Triangle Pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, and Triangle, uh, because they had been working with emtricitabine, they knew it was a very good, very clean drug. They, uh, when we were able to get it back uh, from uh, Glaxo Welcome, because um, there were diligence clauses in the license. Uh, that they had to make progress, and at, at a certain point, they they weren't doing anything with it. So we were able, after a year or so, to get it back. We licensed it to Triangle. They developed it all the way through um, and a filing of a new drug application. Yeah, and then uh, ran out of money. Okay, and were acquired yeah, by Gilead. It? Oh, Gilead. Okay, Gilead. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For six dollars a share. Okay. Uh, which is, you know, it's worth, they made a fortune on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's amazing. What a story. Well, uh, uh, so what did you learn from that? And then what did you carry forward from that point forward? I mean, here, I mean, it must have been extraordinarily, well, it was, it was, it was a grueling journey, but it must have been very gratifying to what led you into that uh, fray. You were able to kind of make good on. It. I mean, you made it made a massive difference just by taking that step, which was, again, to to the point of your colleagues in academia saying you're either crazy or, 
or, or you're stupid, you know, it turned out that neither of those were, were true. How did that feel once that, once you knew it was going to get into patience and make a difference? Well, they, they, they agreed I wasn't stupid. They're, the jury's still out on the crazy <laughs> part. But, uh, but um, it, it, it was incredibly satisfying. Now, um, it turns out something we couldn't have known, and if anybody tells you that they, they could, they're just lying. But we couldn't know. We knew it was a good drug. It was safe. It was potent. But in, in um, HIV, as in many viral diseases, um, you have to worry about resistance developing. And the way we deal with resistance is by uh, administering drugs in combination. What we couldn't know in advance is how well emtricitabine and lamivudine paired up mm. with other drugs. Mm. And that's what made it uh, frontline therapy then and in 2023. Yeah. They're still frontline therapy because mm. they work really well the with a whole variety of other drugs. Yeah. And um, I think I'm at least moderately smart, but I'm not that smart to have known that. <laughs> and that, by the grace of God, yeah. um, has um, enabled yeah. a lot of people to go from what was a death sentence yes. to leading a virtually normal well, life. Well, because it's an incorrigible uh, virus, too, as it yes. turned out to be you know, very, very smart, very adaptable. I mean, part of what you're describing uh, in an abbreviated fashion was playing out over many Many years, but maybe even take take us back to that time frame too, where you had on one hand you're describing this almost a race uh, to to come up with you know therapeutic options, but the you know HIV and the way that you know um, the HIV community mobilized at that time, um, you know it, it it's it's called out as a case that by bringing attention to the matter, it also began to move. Uh, the, the the FDA began to move kind of the the political landscape, br draw attention so that resources could go into HIV research, as I, as I recall. But maybe you could describe kind of what was going on at the time, kind of in the broader world as well. Yeah. So the um, the HIV activists um, may be the real heroes in the story. Mm -hmm. uh, they were um, dedicated, relentless. Um, unstoppable. They and they did all those things that you just said. Uh, they got the attention of pharmaceutical companies, sometimes by picketing outside, sometimes by invading the companies, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, many, many stories. Uh, I I met some of these folks and. Um, we went in for dinner one night and they said, well, they do their own clinical trials. And I said, how could you do your own clinical trial? Isn't that um, expensive? And they said, how much is your life worth to you? Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, you won that argument, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and they, they didn't trust the pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. So they got drugs uh, manufactured and they did their own tests, yeah. and um, and they were they were really a force. And and I um, I was privileged to know them and interact with them. And I'll tell you, 
to this day, um, almost every month, I'll go someplace and out of the blue, someone will say, are you the person who made uh, Mtriva or uh, Epivir or whatever? And I say, yes. And they say, you know, I've lived a normal life for the last 20 years yeah. uh, because of that. Yes. And, mm -hmm. and I tell them, you know, um, I thank you and I'm happy for you, but this was an effort that involved thousands of people, mm -hmm. all of whom made very important contributions mm -hmm. at uh, many points along the way. So it's a little uncomfortable for me to be the hero when I know other people uh, contributed a lot. Sure. And um, they, uh, but, you know, I happen to be right at the start. So mm -hmm. I, I can't name every single person that was involved. I know there were a lot of great, smart people, but I want people to know that um, in order to get across that finish line, mm -hmm. took a huge heroic effort right. of a lot of great people. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. yes. Thankfully, thankfully. All right, so now you've had that experience, and then, you know, what... Tell us a little bit about then what happened thereafter. I mean, uh, you obviously learned a lot from that experience, and then you've ported that into you know your your follow-on work. Um, maybe just flipping ahead to the Sol Solvati uh, story, and also the formation of Pharmacet. You co-founded that, correct? Correct. Maybe talk about that's a little bit different than it seems the experience you had. Um, with the uh, HIV drugs, where it was more of a license to a company that maybe you were not necessarily founding. But with Pharmacet, you were. And maybe talk about what drove you to be part of the founding team. And then a little bit about that experience, what was you know different or better or worse about that uh, and that, that story. Yeah, so it, um, a lot of interesting dynamics. So when Triangle licensed um, what became M-Tricitabine, uh, and uh, um, some other things that uh, we were interested in, uh, we assumed that they would uh, be uh, essentially our source of developing drugs. So we could just make new things in the lab and uh, pass them on to Triangle, and Triangle would develop them. Very naive. Uh, it seemed so obvious to me that that's what was going to happen. But by 1998, the, when we founded Pharmacet, it became clear that the whatever resources Triangle had, it was using for clinical development. And it had shifted its personnel to focus on clinical development mm -hmm. because ultimately, you know, uh, that's the path to to revenue, mm -hmm. right? They, um, <laughs> there was a famous uh, bank robber in the 30s called Willie Sutton, and they asked him, why do you rob banks? And he said, that's where the money is, <laughs> yeah, right? right. And, yes. and, and, you know, uh, getting your drug approved, yeah. that's where the money all, is. And it requires all that cash, just, you know, the further yeah. you get, get down that pathway. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so this... Uh, source that uh, this company that was going to be our conduit mm -hmm. to getting other drugs developed were using their resources as they had to yeah. 
uh, to, to develop the drugs and get them through clinical trials. So we didn't have uh, this, this company that we thought was going to be our source. Uh, so we formed a new one. Okay. And Pharmacet is a, is a, um, a, a term, uh, a sort of uh, contraction of pharmaceutical assets. And that's what we basically, we had several labs, there were several founders, and we were going to take all our pharmaceutical assets and license them to this company, mm-hmm. and this company was going to develop it. Okay. And that was the, the driving force for I that. See. And um, it was pretty interesting because uh, many of the things that we put in there, uh, they worked on them for a while, and they hit a wall. They weren't going anywhere, as is the case, yeah, right? Yeah. We we're, we are not magicians. We don't. We can't. Everything we make doesn't work. Yeah. And um, so, in uh, maybe two thousand two, two thousand three, um, uh, people became very interested in hepatitis C. There was no. There were no drugs to treat hepatitis C. There was only. Um, I shouldn't say that. There was interferon and then ultimately interferon and ribavirin or pegylated uh, interferon and ribavirin. And um, that was um, 48 weeks of torture. You had to have this infusion. Mm. Uh, It created flu-like symptoms. Mm. uh, And um, on the label that FDA uh, puts for this particular therapy, um, one of the side effects was suicide. Uh, So people got Mm. very depressed. And it was only effective against one genotype. Mm. Uh, There are six genotypes Mm. in hepatitis C. And so it was a a very poor solution. Sure. So we decided this was an important market. And, uh, but how do you do this? And... Um, so it turned out my contribution was that there's one uh, position in the ribose ring. These uh, uh, hepatitis C is a um, there's an RNA dependent RNA polymerase, so you need ribonucleoside analogs to mimic it. And uh, the two prime position in, in natural ribose has a hydroxyl group, and I knew that. Um, the carbon-oxygen bond, the carbon-fluorine bond are almost identical in terms of their bond length. And um, by that time, I had become reasonably savvy about intellectual property considerations. So having a fluorine there give us, gave us some degree of novelty uh, for a structure that uh, could mimic the natural hmm. substrate but still be different and patentable. Sure. Um, and that was half... The solution, my the half that I contributed, um, uh, through um, a series of of events that I I won't go go into, uh, we also fa- figured out that on the same carbon, if we put a methyl group, um, that made a big difference, not in the potency, but in the side effect profile. Okay. So, like so yeah, the response. It, it turns out that, that if you don't have that methyl group there, then 
these compounds inhibit um, RNA polymerases, which are pretty important uh, for normal um, human uh, development. Mm -hmm. And uh, they can be quite toxic. Sure. But with that methyl group there, mm. they're not good substrates anymore. It's too big. It doesn't mm. fit in the cavity. Ah. So it basically took out mm. a lot of side effects and gave us structural novelty. Interesting. And, and then the nucleoside that we got from that was... Um, Okay, uh, I, I think if you look back at just the nucleoside, you wouldn't you wouldn't think that this would be a blockbuster, but it turned out that the first in order the active species is a triphosphate, and the first species um, that the nucleoside didn't anabolize very efficiently, but when uh, people made a a monophosphate prodrug a surrogate of something that was metabolized and it, it was already at the monophosphate stage, then it went very efficiently to the triphosphate and that was the blockbuster. Interesting. Yeah. So that, uh, we went from this 48-week regimen with interferon ribavirin that was yeah. uh, just horrendous right. to... A single agent, and this was really a surprise that a single agent uh, would work because resistance didn't develop sufficiently mm -hmm. quickly. But in 12 weeks, some patients were actually cured right. of yeah. hepatitis C. Yeah, it's, it's crazy the way yeah. you talk it's about amazing. it. It's amazing, yeah. No, but it's, uh, and, it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah. Now, some How patient, far along was Pharmacet um, in the development of the of, of the product were were you guys in the clinic at that point or or, or was it still preclinical it was still uh it was it was preclinical okay and they i think they started i'm gonna guess around 2008 maybe or so they they got maybe a little later they got in the um they started their clinical trials yeah and um and they were pursuing another derivative uh first and so the clinical trials on that, and and they they hit a roadblock. So they pivoted to uh, so they had a cytidine analog, mm -hmm. and then the, the um, they pivoted to this um, to this uridine analog, and that's that made all Somaldi. the difference. Yeah. And um, and so it was you know a remarkable story. Yeah. Um, and then. Um, they were in phase three clinical trials, and I went to pick up uh, my colleague, George Painter, who is visiting uh, on a Monday morning, and he said to me, Pharmacet was just acquired by Gilead. <laughs> and I said, really? <laughs> he said, yeah, $137 and change a share. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, no. I said, sorry, you're wrong about yeah, that. Yeah. I ch I checked on Friday and it was seventy dollars a share. And uh, he said, no, I have the announcement right here in my phone. And he read it to me, and that was uh, quite a day. Unbelievable! Right. Like, what a story! What a yeah. story! Well, in Gilead, I mean, uh, back to kind of the you know disruptors. John Martin was a disruptor. Right, wouldn't you say? I mean, he came out of BMS and kind of started I on his own John path. Martin. Amazing, amazing man, and um, 
and story and, and in so many ways a maverick as well. And yeah, even back to the HIV story, talk about the activists. You think about today, um, rare diseases, patient advocacy groups, in, in, a, in a way, they're borrowing the playbook of the Absolutely. HIV activists, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? In, in some uh, completely. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, you borrow things, techniques that work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, the HIV activists were the first um, and maybe the best mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they, they, uh, they had such amazing grassroots support. Yeah. And uh, and I guess it was uh, a prevalent enough infection that if you compare it with a rare disease, there's just less people yeah, involved yeah, in right. a rare disease sure, sure. To, to to try and lobby exactly, for exactly to mobilize. Yeah, right. but to the point where they're able to kind of raise their own funds and Absolutely. develop their own clinical trials, and and I think that to that to to that point, I think. But but I think think about that that era was a disruptive era. On one hand, you had. Uh, John Martin, who was really advancing a new form of uh, a biopharma, he was the biopharma of the future. It was not a big pharma. He was, he was using techniques that he learned at big pharma, but to be a lot more agile. You and your colleagues were, you know, trailblazing, com commercializing innovation out yeah. of a university, which was not done before. And then you got again this early harbinger of, a, you know, a, uh, a directed, you know, activist campaign that could be kind of advocates in, in some way. I mean, so it's amazing to look at today. These are all like standard things that are done mm -hmm. <laughs> all the yeah. time. But I mean, to, to be doing it, um, you know, at, at that point, um, is just really, really heroic. What, um, maybe just switching gears for a minute. So what did you always know that you wanted to be a chemist when you were growing up? Talk about your, what got you into the path in the beginning. Yeah. So, um, um, I had I have an older brother who's a professor mm. at Georgia Tech right here where we are and uh, mm. he was my first professional mm. role model he's about 12 years older than me and um, he he went to uh, he was starting graduate school when he was 21 and I was nine and I just was fascinated by not only what he was doing, but he had this ability to take these complex concepts and make mm. them mm -hmm. appear very simple. They still were complex, but he would explain them in a way that was understandable. And mm. I just said, I want to be like him. And um uh my brother charlie is he's great and he's still yeah. he's still he's a fantastic teacher he uh, he's a, a terrific researcher and um he did uh polymers and other kinds of things that were very different than than what yeah. i uh, uh ultimately did but um he was my role model and some crazy idea in my mind that I was always going to be a professor um, and um, there were plenty of challenges to that I uh, my, my first two years of college I think I had a mm -hmm. 2.1 grade point average in part because I had gone to an all boys high school and then when I went to college there were women there, and and that was, that <laughs> was extremely interesting yeah. to me. And uh, 
distracting. And I don't think I opened a book in yeah, those first two well. years. You did pretty well. He bounced back. Remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I bounced back. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I gave a com- commencement address at one point, and one of my, uh, uh, at, at Oxford College, which is a two-year uh, uh, college associated with Emory, and uh, one of my colleagues' sons graduated, and I told this story about how I uh, didn't do well, but but basically this was one of the keys to my success because I mm. knew I had to work extra hard to mm. catch up to everybody, yeah. and I basically never stopped along the way. And he said, uh, came up to me and he said, "Great, <laughs> so he told my son it's okay to get C's, <laughs> and you can yep. still be yes. successful." <laughs> And yeah, that's so I funny. said, that's, really I, funny. that's not exactly what I meant. <laughs> really I, I meant yeah. that, you know, you can have various points in your career. You can stumble, uh, but it's not that you yeah. never stumble. Yeah. It's how well, you it strikes get up me and that how you, you go forward. Um, you know, important. you're a professor, and obviously a lot of your uh, focus is on your research, but... Um, you strike me as a person who likes to teach, too. Um, and is that something that is still a very um, exhilarating activity as part of the many things that you have you know, going on in, your, in the many roles that you have? Absolutely. So right now, uh, just before I came here, I had my class. It's, um, you might be surprised that I'm teaching uh, freshmen. Okay. But these are special freshmen who took... AP chemistry, and we have an organic chemistry course, especially for for uh, students who did well in AP chemistry, mm-hmm. and they were all the stars of their high school. Mm-hmm. So it's a very high-powered course, yep. and um, and I challenge them. And the goal of the course is um, by the end of the year to get the majority of them to join a research lab. And I've been very successful. At <laughs> High conversion rate. Yeah. yeah, you know, and it, you know, I have a lot of colleagues in the medical school, and they get to choose wherever they want to go. Yeah. But um, it's great, and I love it. I I had a colleague when when we um, at one point we uh, we had monetized our royalty rights to M Tricytamine and um, made uh, I think the university got five hundred and twenty five million dollars. And I got a significant piece of that personally. And I was walking on the campus and one of my colleagues from the psychiatry department, we sort of met at a corner and he says, Dennis, why are you still here? (laughs) And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, why did you go into science? He said, well, I love science. He said, it's great. I love, I love the, the challenges, I love interacting with people, etc. I said, suppose you could do your science and never have to worry about money. He said, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that's why I'm here, that's why I still teach, because I love it. Yeah, no, I, I, that, that's wonderful. And is, uh, one, one more question, just kind of then bringing it back to present day and kind of looking ahead. Um, you know, you haven't stopped. You just keep going. I mean, you, 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 we just talked about just a sliver of your overall experiences and uh, your prolific impact on the drugs that you've helped take to market. Um, but talk a little bit about like Drive and its role in COVID. And you talked about George Painter. Kyle. I mean, Emory's got quite a bit of mojo in the antiviral arena, Drive. Maybe just talk a little bit about that model 
and uh, and how it's also kind of an evolved model from, like you said, there was no tech transfer office back in the day. What what is Drive doing, and and what's its role in kind of spinning out novel new products that could be the next, um, you know, Mtriva or or whatever it could be. Drive. Uh, is an acronym that stands for Drug Innovation Ventures at Emory. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we liked the, the, the principle of going forward, pushing things. Uh, it had the right uh, feel to it. And, uh, and I'm always reminded of my uh, favorite quote from uh, Mario Andretti. Uh, we, he said... If everything seems under control, you're driving too slowly. <laughs> That's drug development. You have moving parts all over the place. Yeah. And if you wait for everything to get under control, you're never going to go forward. Yeah. But Drive was created because through the Triangle experience and the Pharmacet experience, yeah. we learned that academia is ill-suited to do drug development. It, um, It's... The culture is wrong, the regulations are wrong. So every research university in the country has um, uh, an intellectual property policy, and part of that has a revenue distribution formula. And in all of those things, if there is a revenue event for any technology, it comes back to the university and they give some money, variable depending on the university, to the inventors, to the inventors' labs, to the inventors' departments, to the inventors' schools, uh, but nothing gets plowed back into the technology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you have a success and you get some revenue, unlike a company, yeah. you can't really move the technology forward. Interesting. Okay. So uh, what could we do? We could either change, uh, try and change the policy of the university, good luck on that one, mm-hmm. or uh, you spin out a separate, separate legal entity hmm. that is doesn't fall under the rules and regulations of the university. So Drive is a single-member LLC, oh, wow. a wholly owned subsidiary of the university, okay. but separate from it. Hmm. So we did not have to do that. Drive can in-license technologies, say from my lab, oh. and and then they can use their resources to develop it. And um, and then maybe um, uh, license it uh, at some later value inflection point um, to uh, a company, and um, and that model proved very viable. But there was one uh, caveat to that, and that is um, Dennis Leota. You say, well, very successful, but I'm a guy who never left school. And when it comes to drug development, it's a highly specialized um, environment. I've seen plenty of snapshots, but I've never lived drug development the way someone in a company does. Mm-hmm. And that's where George Painter came in. Okay, George it. Painter spent his, his whole life in pharma and biotech. And he, he understands drug development about as well as anybody. And he was one of our advisors at one point to the Emory Institute for Drug Development. And, uh, and then he's, and I said, George, I, I 
I'm the wrong person to lead this. I'm good at discovery and I'm good at taking things forward, but I need somebody with commercial sector experience. Do you know anybody who could who could do that? He said, I'd be interested in that. That's great. And <laughs> that was the start. That's, yeah. Great. Yeah. that's great. That's uh, great. Well, that's so interesting to see the evolution of your early experiences leading to this innovative, cutting-edge approach uh, for commercializing innovation coming out of a, uh, a, a university. Um, I know Suna wants to ask you a little bit about your experience um, working in South Africa and some of the nonprofit activities that you have. But before we jump to that, um, kind of rounding out the circle on the important ingredients for creating the conditions so that more great ideas can get commercialized, the importance of so-called ecosystem. And maybe you could just comment a little bit about your observations um, uh, of Atlanta and Georgia and kind of where it is today, where it needs to get to for it to become, um, you know, it's obviously moving forward and and, and accelerating in, in many ways. Talk maybe about the way it the way it's uh, positioned today and what you think are some of the features that make it an attractive ecosystem as you look out 10, 10 years? Yeah, so um, I mentioned uh, Willie Sutton's quote, and uh, that's why a lot of companies thrive in Cambridge, Massachusetts, sure. in South San Francisco, in San Diego, other places, uh, that's where the money is, yeah. right? Uh, but in addition to money, you have to ask, where is the talent? Where are the novel technologies? Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of them in those, in those places that I named and other places. But there are a lot of uh, gems here in the Southeast that um, are sometimes ignored mm -hmm. by the big venture groups. And it takes a group like Portal to say, you know, maybe if we if we uh, are diligent and we look around at some of the the places that aren't um, as uh, uh, well um, visited as uh, as uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, maybe we could find some really good technology there and the sort of diamond in the rough yeah. opportunity. And I think that's where we are, and I think. Your group and others are beginning to discover that um, there's some really good stuff here. Yeah. And we also learned from the pandemic that you don't have to physically visit every week right. with people. Now we, we uh, do Zoom yeah. calls and other things. And so it's not as tedious to keep up with uh, the activities of your yeah. company. And all those things together, I think, are going to turn Atlanta in a decade into uh, the next biotech hub. Yeah, no, very interesting. Yeah, and to your point too, just COVID also demonstrated that um, you, you can work remotely, not necessarily if you're, you know, running chemical reactions in a, you know, a, a Grignard reaction in the lab or a hydrogenation. You can't do that in your, can't you do that in your you bathtub at home. <laughs> <laughs> I got to throw a couple. Yeah, it's so yeah. much fun. Yeah. Uh, that's what I love about biotech, yeah. the words and the people. Right. <laughs> but uh, what, where I was going with that is, you know, just, you know, overall, you know, you need physical infrastructure, obviously, to do that type, type of work. But nevertheless, Biotech companies 
I believe, in the next 10 years, are also going to have to grow in a more distributed fashion. And they can. You can have a CMO in Seattle right. uh, that maybe otherwise wouldn't take the role for the company that's in Atlanta exactly. or Chicago or even Boston. I mean, there's a lot of companies in Boston that have a CFO in Naples, Florida. I mean, so that that distribution, I think... It's all going to center around the talent, you know, in the in the in a given area of expertise, and the core science always kind of has to be, I think, together and and working and physically together. But the ability to grow and scale a company, so I think that all of a sudden, in addition to all the investments that have been made to the by the universities to bring in and attract and retain people like you, that's distributing. But then you also have um, the ability to to grow and scale these companies in a more distributed fashion. That begins to really activate, you know, ecosystems that really always had the raw ingredients. I mean, Atlanta's always had a lot of the raw inputs, like Chicago and, and Houston and other places, but they're just now getting activated because of some of these, you know, uh, forces that are coming together. Anyway, I didn't mean to no, hog that part. That is the great equalizer, or will be the great equalizer, is that ultimately, because of all those capabilities, then it's going to be the best technology mm -hmm. will 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 emerge, yeah. and and it's less important where it emerges. I think from. so. Yeah, yeah. So, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, uh, uh, kind of a mini segue there, but yeah, just talking about where will the next breakthroughs in biotech and these technologies come from, and. Um, being that my parents are both from West Africa, Sierra Leone, uh, my introduction to you is actually through the nonprofit Advancing Healthcare Initiatives in Africa. And when you talk about some of these growing fields within biotech, precision medicine, uh, and making sure that we have the inclusion of different populations, considerations of different cultures, uh, how do you impact either the th drug development process or even when it comes to med devices, what its ultimate usage will be globally. Um, I, you know, I was just really happy to know that, you know, someone like you are, is someone who is interested in innovating globally as well. And I'm so interested to kind of hear more about what was your introduction to the continent of Africa and, and why did you think it was so important to create this vehicle for African entrepreneurs to also get in on the biotech industry. So um, a, a colleague um, from Imperial College um, had regularly had good postdocs from various universities in South Africa, and he went there a lot, and he told us, you know, there are really good opportunities here for research collaborations. And uh, and so we got a group together, Imperial, Cambridge, Georgia Tech, Emory. We, we put um, a little contingent together and we went around and visited South African universities. And a couple of things emerged. One, that there, was, there were plenty of smart people there. Uh, and... Uh, in my particular case, uh, I noticed that there was a dearth of medicinal chemistry knowledge. Um, why? Well, apartheid. Um, the uh, the the people who were the who had expertise in medicinal chemistry uh, were reasonably mobile. They could 
get jobs outside of mm. the country, and they left. And then the usual path we have of mentor, apprentice, uh, passing on knowledge, mm. now there was this huge gap. I see. And so my first idea, which is terribly flawed, but so well-intentioned, was um, we can fill that gap. We can teach these people medicinal chemistry. Uh, we can, and, and I was really excited about it. And uh, George Painter and I were, were, were uh, visiting uh, the, the director general of what was then the Office of Science and Technology in South Africa. And we were talking and in our conversation, it became clear that if we train people in medicinal chemistry, um, there were no jobs for them there. There were no companies. Mm. So what would they do? They would do what their predecessors right. did. They'd leave. Yeah. So our well-intentioned effort would have been creating a brain drain, mm -hmm. right? So what did we do? We said, let's start a company. So we started a company called Itemba Pharmaceuticals. Itemba is a word in uh, many African languages that means hope. Mm. And uh, actually, uh, um, a friend who used to be at Georgia Tech um, wrote a book um, about the whole Itemba experience, using Itemba as the, the model for trying to develop uh, African biotech. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's called <laughs> Synthesizing Hope. And it's a very nice book, yes. and it chronicles everything we did. Yeah. And so Itemba was funded by the South African government. Mm. We, we got oh, some enormously talented people. Mm -hmm. And we um, proceeded for about eight years, and then the government, there were no venture capitalists, so the only source of money was government. Mm -hmm. So... Um, the, the agency that was funding us had some financial scandal mm. and they just basically mm. stopped doing any investment. And we had to shut down the company because yeah. we had no, sure. no money. Sure. Um, but, you know, so, so the company turned out to be a commercial failure. But I just went back last year um, and I gave the keynote address at the Bio-Africa Convention. And it was amazing how many people had worked either with the company or mm. for the company that came up to me. And they're now in leadership positions yeah. in, um, in the biotech sector. Yeah. And it was, it, so it made me feel so good that the commercial failure wasn't really a total failure. In yeah. fact, in, in a sense, yeah. Um, we it trained them the landscape. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. To, to do what they had to do. And so, um, so the company scene still looked like it was too challenging to work from 9,000 miles away. So we decided, let's try and put together an initiative that would facilitate innovation and entrepreneurship in Africa. And that's what AHIA is advancing healthcare um, innovation in Africa. That's what we do, and that's where you made such nice contributions, and um, that's where we continue to partner 
with um, uh, with our colleagues in Africa to do this, and um, and we actually are trying to develop a clinical trial right now um, using um, inexpensive uh, old cancer drugs that we found that if you give them at low enough uh, concentrations are actually immunomodulators. And so we're gonna try and develop a uh, inexpensive immunotherapy that could be given to people in rural sectors uh, because they're oral. Hmm. And right now they have no alternatives because they can't afford to go to the city and stay there for 12 weeks and have infusions and everything. So we're gonna we're 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 very excited about this initiative, and uh, as one of my colleagues uh, said, I told her, you know, this could be really important for South Africa and a lot of African countries and even you know countries around the world. She said, well, how about South Georgia? She said, yeah, hospitals yeah, sure. are closing. It's mm -hmm. the same situation. People sure. can't afford to come up to Atlanta and stay mm -hmm. here yeah. uh, indefinitely. Yeah, so. So we need inexpensive therapies yeah. uh, that can do that. And that's one of my missions uh, now. You're a trailblazer. Uh, this has just been a really an inspiring conversation. Before we close out, though, I promise we'd, we'd keep it to about an hour or maybe a minute past. But um, what advice kind of would you give to the next generation faculty entrepreneur? Maybe it's those students, the special freshman students that you're teaching right now. Um, now, these, this is, would be an individual that has entrepreneurial ambitions. Any advice or uh, counsel that you would uh, provide to them having experienced that, what you experienced as they begin their journey? To me, it's, a, it's all about passion and commitment. Mm -hmm. And passion takes you a long way. In, in any endeavor that you do, you're going to run into plenty of bumps in the road. You're going to plenty of obstacles. Uh, and if you're really passionate about doing something, that passion will see you through mm -hmm. and get you over the hump. So believe in it. I tell my students that my goal every day is to find a way to change the world and make it a better place. Mm. Even if it's just in a small way yeah. today, yeah. make the world better and have a big dream and then follow your passion and figure out how to make that dream into a reality. Yeah, I, don't, I think uh, maybe the listeners may not be getting as much, but you know, yeah. you can you can tell it in how you're even telling your stories yeah. and, and you can tell there's so much behind there. And, yeah. and when you do have those bad days, that's where this, this comes up. Yeah. And just the, you, the keep moving forward, uh, approach, um, and keeping to your North star and just keep going. And, and it's clear again, I just, uh, really, um, um, I'm just learning from the conversation and I'm myself am listening to what you're saying and also will take some of these ideas with me as I think about, you know, the energy that you bring to your uh, day, the energy and passion that you bring to continuing to create and the world's a better place because of all the work that you've done so far and the work you're going to be doing tomorrow. And that's why, you know, Portal's really excited to be here. Portal is, you know, really um, 
overjoyed to be, you know, hearing about new innovations coming out of your lab. And, and uh, so we hope we can be part of the future stories and we hope we can in some way change the world together as we march down the path. That's our yeah. ambition and our goal too. So Let's try to move it. the needle. <laughs> Let's yeah. do it. Okay. So. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.